Welcome to All Talk Oncology. I'm your host, Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. The Cancer Guy. Today, we have a phenomenal guest. We, we always have phenomenal guests, but today we have another phenomenal guest. And let me tell you this. You know, it's not often that we get males on here that can express themselves and, and talk to you about their journey. And I think for men, we bottle it up. I think that's one of the reasons men bottle it up and they deal with it on their own. Whereas we see a lot of the ladies, they are talkative. They want to talk to other ladies and express it for the most part. And so we have a lot more female guests and we love it, of course. But when we can get a male on here to talk about his journey and what he's gone through with cancer and how he's battled that, oh, come on. We need more men like this to open up, and I'm going to always be here, arms open, to invite more. So today, we have a guest on our show, and today's topic is testicular cancer. Ooh, right? Men, how do you deal with testicular cancer? Because, you know, that's, that's a big thing to us, what's, what's between our legs sometimes. And, I, and not to be vulgar, but it's, it's, a, it's a discussion and it's a very sensitive discussion. And but today we're going to talk tackle it and we're going to tackle it with the right person. Today I want to introduce you to a phenomenal guest. His name is Peter Linnaeus. Peter, welcome to All Talk Oncology. Oh, proud of us. That's even better. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction, Kenny. And oh you, you touched the nail right on the head as so specific as possible. When like, I, I, I just, I'm trying to find the words exactly where to start. So I'm just going to trust my instinct in that dealing with cancer as a male and being raised in North American society, I openly share this from my peer support days. And uh, what I continue to do is that we are given permission to express two feelings. We're allowed to be happy and we're allowed to be pissed off. Anything else is considered a different type of emotion. There's very rare permission in order to express it because it's considered uncomfortable. And when you start going down that road, it makes other people not only feel uncomfortable, but address their helplessness. It's that feeling of there's something wrong with you, it's invisible and I can't do anything about it, but we don't have enough faculties in place when we're growing up to give us permission in order to express all those feelings as freely as possible. I, I had a great experience with my uh, psychosocial oncologist over at Princess Margaret Hospital in Canada where I learned how to treat emotions like visitors and each one as they approach, they have something to say to you. If you don't give it the voice, if you don't hear it out for what's going to happen in the moment, it's just going to hang around and it's going to just what's happening with you. So granted, if the visitor is happy, sure, it comes in, you want it to stay, but it, once it's set its piece, it's got to go. But if we're resistant to understand either sorrow or grief or challenge, whatever's happening in those moments, we're very reluctant to kind of let them through the door, and, but they're not going anywhere until they actually get heard and allow, you allow yourself to emotionally deal with and metabolize, if you will, what's being said and then bring that to reality of, okay, this is what's going on. I have to accept it. I don't have to be perfect at it, but at least address what's in front of me and make an informed move. And the other dimension that I loved is saying, when you think about a Crayola color box, and if every color was an emotion, as you express them, red doesn't resent blue. 
So why don't you let green and yellow and purple all have a say? Because they're there, they're equal. It just, there's one chromosome difference between men and women. Otherwise we're built the same. We have the same capacity for the same emotions. We celebrate male actors who are able to emote what they do on screen as a character, which then becomes comfortable, but it's supposed to be art imitating life. And if we in life can't do that, then why are we putting on a show? Ooh, so. ooh, Peter. Sorry. Sorry. You're, you're speaking some depth. You're speaking in depth, my friend. I love it. You know, <laughs> I meant to say my sermon is at four. <laughs> I may have missed my calling. You know, you know, Peter, it is so true, right? We have so many emotions and we need to express them. We, we should be, we should feel comfortable. And I want to make sure that I create this platform and create the comfort and open, warm, you know, feelings, be vulnerable on here because this is what it's about here. It's about being able to express what you're going through, the fear, the, you know, with the vulnerability, whatever it may be. And uh, I want to get into that with you. And thank you. Thank you for that. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about who Peter is before we get going, right? What was Peter doing prior to being diagnosed? You know, who, who, who were you? What were you doing? Oh, well, uh, for, as a caveat, first thing I'll start off with is that uh, for those who don't know, uh, with testicular cancer, it's the most common cancer to affect men between 16 and 29 years of age. So there's no real known uh, cause for it other than some common denominators at birth, typically, where they find that uh, either if you were undescended at, at birth or you were born with an ingual hernia, you, there seems to be a commonality that those young men um, end up developing testicular cancer is somewhere in their 20s. Now, I had an ingual hernia when I was born. They didn't know in the 70s to tell to my parents, by the way, keep your eye on this kid because this might happen. So it is what it is now, you know, hindsight's always 2020. To, to answer the question, um, contrary to what you might see in the moment, I would say that I was, and I'm not being self-deprecating when I say this, I'm being very truthful. Um, I was an incredibly introverted, false extrovert, uh, self-deprecating, highly insecure narcissist. I was so wrapped up in myself. I just like had these grandiose dreams of who it was that I wanted to be and just no real sense of direction. When I look back, if I could go in a time machine, I probably would have slapped that kid a few times <laughs> and say, do you know what you have in you? Like what you can do if you just apply yourself. Don't be worried about what other people think because what that little thing is that's right now and small inside of you is going to make you so special. And I don't say that from a place of ego. I say it because you own what makes you unique. And we all come to the table with special skills. There's all something we just were naturally born to do. And I now understand at this point in my life, what I do is I'm good at making people feel safe. And it's so different. Like I didn't, like if someone said to me, you know, we're living in a comic book world, you know, I'm the guy who's drinking from a green lantern glass. Hopefully there's no copyright issues with that. And to say like, you know, here's your unique ability, you know, X were, you know, X-Men mutant, you make people feel safe. I'm like, well, that's not really a superpower. What does that mean? Oh no, it is a huge superpower in life and in everything. So to, to answer your question, pre-cancer, uh, I was coming to terms with 
moving out, my background, uh, I'm born in uh, Toronto, Canada. I identify as Greek by descent, um, very much my cultural upbringing. I'm also a member of the LGBT community. So that was something where I was coming to terms with myself, the whole coming out process and being okay with who I am. And then cancer happened where it was just this left field blindside. Like I, I had no history in my family as far as I was aware. I came from a place where, you know, the, the men in my family, like my dad's side, were all riddled with heart disease. So I learned to eat like a heart patient, take care of myself, go to the gym, have a balanced lifestyle, all those things that I'm told that I'm supposed to do, Pre you know, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And then just blammo after five weeks of not knowing why my testicle was the size of a kiwi, then I get an answer. So wow. hopefully that answers everything up till that point in my existence at 26. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very, very, very extensive. Yep. So that must have been surprising, right? I mean, hello, you look down there, you, you got a kiwi on, on one side. You're going, hey, this, this can't be correct, right? Something's wrong with this picture. And so, so you go in, right? Talk to us a little bit about that, right? You go in. I mean, that, that's a little different because some people may or may not have had symptoms and then they go in and they get a diagnosis. You, I mean, you had a big symptom, right? You had a big thing looking at you going, hey, you want to go get me checked? So were you nervous at that time? Talk to us about when you go in and, and what happens at that point? Well, I think that... Um when things first started a lot and it wasn't like an overnight switch um it was a progressive thing where first it was a dull ache it was kind of uncomfortable i thought maybe you know i need to change the style of underwear that i'm wearing maybe it's too snug who knows what's going on i don't know but um at the time i wasn't uh, i didn't have a general practitioner doctor and i'm the first one to admit my scope of health was very limited to i get two dirty colds a year so I just know when it's coming, got a sense that, oh, it's going to knock me out for what, three days and I'll be fine. And speaking to what you talked about earlier about this whole idea of being able to communicate emotionally as a male in North American society, there's also that adage and perspective of, you know, just man up, tough up, you know, it's, it's you know, just, you broke your leg, just walk it off. Mm -hmm. No, I broke my leg. Walking would not be wise at all. And it's being able to take a step back and kind of divorce yourself from this notion of what is projected that you should be versus what's actually happening in the moment. And maybe not just the limits of your body, but the limits of your emotional stability, the limits of your psyche, like how much are you going to dump on yourself that I must fit within this conformity. But meanwhile, this is who I am. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're trying to drive the camel through the needle of an eye as uh, the eye of a needle. And it's just not going to happen. So to answer your question, it was a progression where at the time I was bartending and uh, once uh, for once a week during those five weeks, I was going into Toronto General Hospital. And now my symptoms, because it was a bit like when as it physically grew initially, it was kind of undiagnosable. There were so many different potentials. And it wasn't until I started to learn a bit more about medicine, where most practitioners, they start at the broad and they narrow down to the specific based on the elimination of different factors. So that to me makes sense now. But in the moment, of course, there's that nervousness of a patient going, I don't know what's wrong. Give me the pill that'll fix it because I'm in pain <laughs> or whatever I got to do. 
so it was a progressive pain. And over the span of these five weeks, while I was going in once a week to the hospital, um, I was told at one point it was this condition called mesenteric adenitis, which is an inflammation of the lymph nodes. It's a virus and can cause swelling in the testicle and or testicles. So that got ruled out. One point there was a suggestion of an STD and I'm looking at it going, I haven't gotten none. So I don't know where that's coming from, but <laughs> check, 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 you know, painful, like boop, swab. And I'm like, oh, so that's horrible. Don't ever want to do that again. And it, uh, it wasn't a torsion. So that would have been, uh, you know, where the testicle twists and then it causes necrosis and then there's a risk of it dying. So there's all sorts of com complications with that, but I wasn't screaming in pain the way I should have been for that. So progressively eliminated, but then said testicle got larger. Week five, I lucked out and the doctor on duty happened to be a urologist. He took one look at me. He's like, CT ultrasound, let's go right now. Mm. And at the time I was with my, my ex roommate and he came with me. And it's, it's funny how anytime I've spoken to cancer survivors, when you get that diagnosis, like they, the, the words come out of their mouth to say, you have cancer. We all know what the room looked like. We all like memorize that exact moment because everything just, that's when it changed. And you might not appreciate it. You might not in the moment, but as it starts to unfold, you look back at that pivotal experience. And I remember exactly the examination room I was in at Merge. Anytime I've had to go to the hospital since, I always just walk by that room and kind of have a silent moment of acknowledgement of that's where it started. And went through the scanning, came back down, and you can tell I'm a little animated now, and I'm, I like to make people laugh. And after getting the ultrasound done, for those who haven't had the experience, it involves what looks like sort of a paint roller and a, like a warm, translucent, like goopy lube. And that ends up being all over wherever they got to check you out. And in my case, when they're checking for this, it's not just the testicles, but it's also looking uh, in the abdominal area to see if there's any inflammation in the lymph nodes, looking for the uh, enlargement. And that's sort of looking at whether or not it's metastasized. So yeah. I'm getting rolled around from the waist down, just getting lathered up. And I'm... <laughs> You must be freaking out a little bit at this time, right? Because, you know, you're not, you're moving beyond now the, the, the problem area, the testicle. You're, you're touching my abdomen. Like, really, what's, what's going on here? Are you, are you freaking out? Well, I, um, I wasn't allowing myself to feel anything. Okay. And that's, that speaks to the earlier statement about trying to be, you know, permission for happy versus angry. Because I, I am a very logic-driven person where I look at a situation and figure until I have all the factors I really can't make an assessment because if I fly off the handle emotionally and like, I like to credit given to my, you know, Mediterranean stereotype side where it's like, you know, my Greek blood will not permit me to stay calm. <laughs> it's just like, no, you need to just wait and figure it out and let's take it step by step. Cause I don't want to go down that road unless yeah. I know that it's 100% that's what's going on. And in that moment, I, you know, I'm wearing the gown, nothing from the waist down, come back downstairs. I'm waiting anxiously on the gurney and my roommate's sitting there. He's chomping his nails and I'm just trying to stay calm and not let that energy impact me. Like, okay, okay, let's just wait. And then to get the diagnosis, say, okay, you've got testicular cancer. It's stage three. Uh, we need to remove it right away. And in my selfish mind, because I haven't touched on this yet, it really hurt. <laughs> it was just at least a six or seven out of 10 at this point. And I didn't have much experience. And I mean, some was surgery, but not a lot with intensive recovery. So I just listened to my body and I just know that that one part is just screaming at me. And I look at the nurse and the doctors say, okay, tomorrow morning, got it. 
can I have a painkiller now? <laughs> and they're like, yes, you need one. I'm like, cool. And my poor roommate is just freaking out at this point. It's like, oh my God, you have cancer. And I, it just, I just took that moment and maybe this is a bit of foreshadowing, not realizing that I walked over in my gown, nude from the waist down underneath, dripping this goop <laughs> on the floor, giving him a very good golf hug saying, it's okay, you'll be fine, don't worry. <laughs> and it was what it was. My, my mom was uh, working overseas. She flew back to Canada right away. I called her to say, this is what's going on. And it was just, everything happened so fast. I didn't allow myself to feel anything. This was in December of 2002. Uh, on the 19th. And I really didn't give myself any permission to understand what was going on till almost New Year's. Wow. I just like, uh, my brain couldn't process it. Almost like, a whole month, huh? It was, um, it was the magnitude. Yeah. It was like, it was the weight of that word and having no precedent, having no experience, either family wise. Um, it is what it is. It was what it was. Yeah. You know, you know, Peter, it's, it's a very interesting thing you talked about. You know, it's a lot of times my, my, my initial, my initial question to you is what you freaking out because they're checking your abdomen and yet it's the testicle. That's the issue. And then you turn around and talk about, no, not at all. You know, you had the, you had the, the know with all to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to put myself in that position, but from the outside perspective, looking in, you look at your friend and that's what happens to us in life, right? People give us that energy of, oh my God. And, and you end up, you end up giving them a hug, right? You, you haven't even been affected yet, but this is what happens. I, I think even with cancer patients, we find, we find, and what I've been listening to, it's a shocking moment when you get that news and how, how did that breakthrough happen? Because you talked about here it is, it's December from January. What was your thought process? And then when it came about, oh my God, this is cancer and what's going on with me? I can only say this now in hindsight. So I know in the moment, um, although it may sound like I had, and to, to borrow your word that I had the wherewithal, I did to a point. A lot of it was me utilizing that I'm only allowed to express happiness and anger. So other things I stunted. I put them on the back burner. I didn't let myself feel it because I didn't know what any of it meant. And I feel that in the moment with my, uh, with my ex-roommate where immediately like my first experience within seconds is consoling someone else. I didn't really, uh, a lot of it was trust. A lot of it came down to who can I trust with this vulnerability inside myself? Because now not only am I discussing my mortality, but anything you say is going to have such access to me. And it can be negative. It can be elevating. It's all unique unto the person. And I'll be the first one to say, I didn't trust anybody. Yeah. I, I, it was too raw. It was too naked um, to, to deal with the thought process of, and the fact that it was tied to my gender, it was, it had to do with my reproductive organ where, you know, there's this, um, there's a, um, uh, a documentary that I was in, it was called Balls. And it's here, it was produced on Canada, in Canada, and uh, I got interviewed as a two-time survivor. Um, and it was just discussing how different people perceive what, you know, what testicles represent in society and how it ties to us as men. When you think about how we say it's our private parts, well, why should I be ashamed? 
it makes up maybe 2% of me as a person. Some people are blessed. It makes four, but <laughs> for the most part, 2% and to have so much weight surrounding that your own, your identity for your gender is just in hindsight is completely obscure to me. Like it's just like, that is not pivotally what makes you who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something to try to embrace regardless of your gender or your identity as a human being to know enough to know the, you wouldn't be who you are without the parts that who you are. And as you, as things may change and things may evolve, those parts aren't necessarily physical. That's not a representation of who you are. So it's, it's up to you where you feel that, okay, you look at yourself in the mirror and this gives me peace, but it's also being authentic. And, you know, at 26, I didn't have the, the maturity or the, the real ability to try to digest it in the moment. I was just trying to get to what does this all play out to? So I was, uh, I understand now that with testicular cancer, there's a 97% cure rate with early detection. So those odds are fantastic. And they were very transparent right from the beginning. They said, if we catch this early, we can deal with it. We're going to basically do this on, uh, it's called an orchiectomy in order to remove the testicle for those listening. And then six cycles, in my case, ended up being six months of just blasting you with chemo to try to eradicate anything that might be in your system. And that was it. I just, I, I saw it as a challenge and I looked at it as, okay, this is my mission. I have a purpose. I got to get through this. And it sounds kind of cliche, a little war movie-esque, but it, it was what got me through. All of a sudden they come in, they say, Peter, we're going to do surgery and we're going to be removing one of your testicles. Now you mentioned, okay, you didn't really have time to really process those feelings. And, you know, but as a male, you know, in society, they put so much emphasis on this. And so now one of your testicles is going to be removed and you're going to go into some chemo, but it's 97% curable. So you get through this, you, you go to that process, walk us through that a little bit. Um, well, the, uh, the orchiectomy was very transparently explained to me how it would go. Uh, the surgery goes into the pelvis in order to reach into the scrotal sac, remove the testicle. Uh, typically, there's an option presented if you want to get a prosthetic. Uh, I chose yes, just because I, you know, and in the moment I'm being joking, but in the in reality, I'm thinking I don't want to have to go through the reality of looking at a half empty sack. <laughs> I really don't like. I don't know what that means. Right. I mean, these are two roommates that have been together forever. I mean, to have a sudden eviction is just going to be upsetting for the other one. So I don't want to have to worry about some, you know, heartbroken budgie syndrome where the other one just dies immediately. So, you know, in the moment they offered to me, and they said, you know, would you like a prosthetic? And I said, yes, what are my choices? I mean, is it going to come out of like one of those gumball machines, the super bouncy ball? Or, <laughs> you know, can I get myself a magic eight ball, give it a shake, things are looking up and they're looking at me in the moment saying, this guy is handling this way too well. <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking it's this or I cry. Yeah. So I don't yeah. want to do that until I know that it's safe to cry. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you said and then, something very powerful too. You know, you said, you know, it's a very vulnerable place and you have to trust people to, in that space. And most of us, uh, have trust issues, right? So I totally, that's a, that's a great point. 
And as a male, how much more so would they not want to talk about that, right? You, it's a double whammy, if, if, I, if that's okay to say, right? It's all, you're vulnerable because you have cancer, but then it's vulnerable because it's, it's already a sensitive place where you have cancer. So you, you, you touched on that, and, and I wanted to highlight that. Um, I think it's really astute for you to, to bring that to light. There's uh, the, the vulnerability that comes with the gender identity and dealing with a reproductive organ and that what's tied to our testicles growing up as men is that sense of privacy, intimacy, and uh, an unspoken shame. Like, unless there are, you know, this factor, this factor, or this factor, then it's not really a point of, you know, putting them on showcase. Like, when do you ever really see, you know, in mainstream media, you never see testicles. You never really see them in a movie. And it's this sense of uncomfortability. So what does that say to us if something happens to that? I, as, the, you know, as time went on um, and I got more involved and I started learning about things within the testicular cancer community or just talking to other men openly about what I had been through, these stories kind of started coming at me. Mm. And it was trying to understand if or how this changed my identity. And that's where like for lack of a better term, like the saboteurs started coming in the internal ones, like that little one just sitting on your shoulder saying, what are people going to think of you when they find out that one of your testicles is fake? What are they going to think when they realize that you get hacked up? Like what is going to be said about you? How are you going to deal with chemo? And I just kept repeating this mantra to myself over and all say, I'm not going to know until I get there. And I just, I had to not let that get ahead of me. And believe me, by no stretch was I perfect. Um, it did get to me. Um, it, it was just every, it, in its own way, it was kind of a bit of a blessing that everything happened so fast. And another blessing without question is the oncology and the surgery staff. They had an amazing bedside manner. They, they recognized what was going on. And I think that speaks volumes about either them as individuals or the quality of training that's provided when it comes to oncology. The people have that natural empathy they understand like you're going through something that's not just challenging but it's scaring the living everything out of you yes. and you might not be able to express it in the moment because you know as men do we have permission to do it no like we're not permitted to be scared because that's just not okay because then that tells everyone that wait a second men can be scared what does that mean uh, but it's true it's just how you express it if you express it and, you know, we all know how healthy it is to take those toxic feelings and jam them inside and then just wonder why <laughs> afterwards thinking, hmm, why am I so, why am I so effed up about this? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know how to express myself. Yes. You know, it's like putting a protective dome on a pressure cooker and you're shocked that it exploded. Of course it's going to explode. <laughs> yeah. I love the way you explain that. So, so clear, so clear, you know, so, so. You're going through this, you go through this chemo, you know, is this chemo harsh? Explain that, you know, explain, because if someone gets diagnosed and they're listening to this, what should they expect with this chemo? What, how did you get through that? Well, um, one thing I did learn really quickly is that, that um, mind you, this was after treatment, is the, the broad spectrum of chemotherapy that's available. Uh, intensity, uh, combinations, they're all unique and specific, not just to the type of cancer you're diagnosed with. Um, there's varying levels and tiers and types of cancer within those types. And they, as far as I understand, they normally function from precedent. 
So if they know that they've got a patient that is, you know, uh, this gender, this age range, this is their health level, this is their diagnosis, and this is what's worked in the past in people that work, that's typically the regimen that they'll put them on because they know that that's got a better chance of working. So it's not really scattershot. There's not so much a one side, you know, one chemo fits all. But um, I did learn that within uh, the realm of testicular cancer that typically uh, there's one drug called cisplatin that's included in a combination that is used for testicular cancer patients to borrow their term, blast your system, and then hopefully eradicate anything that might be going as a free radical in there uh, or a risk of metastases. In my case, I was told that I was going to go through six cycles. And in fairness and truth, um, I really appreciated the rawness of the nurse that I got who just said to me, all right, so here's what we're putting in you. At the end of week one, this is how you're going to feel. You're going to feel kind of tired, a little sense of malaise. You're going to find that your appetite drops. You're not going to worry about nausea till about maybe week two. But don't be surprised if you suddenly get all these cravings for food, probably by about end of day Saturday, beginning of Sunday. But then you're coming back on Monday and we're going to hit you again for the entire week every day. It was, an in, uh, it was very intense to go through. Uh, the hair loss happened. Uh, that was something that I decided to own. So first day of chemo, uh, after it was done, went home, took the clippers, went through the head. Um, very liberating, by the way. Uh, Man, I, I, looks like I, me. I know, right? <laughs> I thought that you did that as a sign of support. I mean, I'll really never know. I met you this way. But I, I, love, I love that fuzzy feeling, like when it's down to a zero, it's just like, oh, this feels so good. It's just a great tactile experience. And um, on track by about the end of week two is when uh, I, uh, huh. having to go through and then see those bristles. I was, uh, I think that's when it got real. That's like, it wasn't the IVs. It wasn't, uh, that was it. That was, that was, uh, whew. uh, that was the moment. Uh, and I remember I, uh, I got a damp face cloth and I just went over everything. Just, it's going to go. And, uh, it was, uh, there was, it was goodbye. It was goodbye to not knowing. And uh, I think that was probably the, uh, when, that was, that was a, I don't want to say it was the hardest moment, but it was, uh, it was a pivotal moment. And it, uh, in hindsight, it made sense. So that was a turning point. Uh, I, ironically, I could still, I, <laughs> after that happened, I was so protective of my eyebrows. <laughs> I slept with pillows on either side so I wouldn't turn and I could still grow facial hair and then one day I just I, I was like just a moment of expression just went oh like this and the entire beard came off I was like oh yeah, well guess it's going clean shaven now but I these went gray but I managed to keep them through the whole thing so I was like that was kind of a definitive thing and um yeah, that I, the, the chemo was intense. Uh, the last part was the way she described it. She says, as we go through each cycle, by the time you reach Friday, it's going to feel like someone hits you with a bat on every side of your body. Mm. And uh, she was right. She was right. Uh, it was a different type of ache and pain and malaise that I was not familiar with. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was a different side of life. And I find that being given that chance afterwards to recover puts it in perspective. Like it's so easy to take things for granted in our lives where we just realize you have this gift of health. You have this gift of mobility. You have this gift 
of being able to get up at all. And it's not till it gets taken away that you realize what's what. Like right now I'm sitting at about 195 pounds. So I'm like almost six feet tall. I got down to 140. Wow. It was not a good look, but it was what it was. And to have an external factor take everything away that I was given, that is when the appreciation kicked in. That's when the gratitude started of, oh, now I can get this back and now I can get this back. And so there, were, there was a silver lining to the cloud. There was a silver lining. Yes. Man, Peter, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's, it happens, right? We get the reality of a situation sometimes hits us and we're faced with ourselves, right? And who we are and what the situation is. And, um, you know, those tears, those tears and understanding, oh my goodness, I, I have cancer and this is real, uh, we definitely need to come to that conclusion sometimes. But what I like about you, not only you're a jokester and you know how to kind of navigate yourself in and out of that, a lot of people don't have that gift, right? To, to navigate themselves in and out by knowing they need, they need a joke to, to up their spirits. So for those that are listening, you know, Peter has a unique gift and, uh, I love that about you, Peter, by the way, and, and being able to, you know, regulate, regulate ourselves so we don't go so far off the deep end, right? Because if we don't have a way to regulate, it can be suicidal, right? It can be suicidal, especially when you're dealing with something of mortality and cancer. So thank you for sharing that. I, I wanted to make sure I highlighted that. So you go through this, Peter. At some point, do you, do you have a, a support team that starts to gather or because you mentioned that your parents or your family was out of state, uh, out of country. Uh, how did you, did you at some point get a support team to help you go through this? I found that I got some reliance from uh, Princess Margaret Hospital. They had, uh, I got prescribed a psychosocial oncologist that I asked for just because I needed someone to talk to. Nice. Um, I didn't, like, in the moment, everything was so fresh and it was almost like, I, um, I don't want to say that I'm embarrassed to say this, but at the time it made sense, is I was carrying a lot of guilt about having come out to my family and their, um, how hard it was, how challenging it was for them to grasp what everything was. And like they, they, their schema of who I was was now thrown upside down because they were living with all these stereotype notions of what it meant that now that, you know, from my father and his side of the family, they know someone in the next generation was gay. Like, what did that mean for them? And there was the, there was that conflict going on where it was uh, culture with reality and, and of course, stigma and stereotypes. So there was a lot of things happening at the same time. Um, I, I say it jovially cancer was like this get out of gay jail free card <laughs> where the focus was on my health that they forgot about that stuff. Mm. And it was its own sort of silent thing where I got so focused on, I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to beat it into the ground. And if whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do it four times over. It doesn't matter. Uh, one of the chemo drugs that I got was I got a steroid called Decadron in order to help build up my cell count and my strength. 
And one nurse just said it jovially. He goes, you know what? You got these steroids. You just go to the gym. Gave me an idea. Like, you know what? Up yours, cancer. I don't care. I'm going to go. I don't care how lousy I feel. It's the fact that I went in. It's the fact that I got at least like a couple of reps in. Who cares what that weight says on the machine? I'm here. I forced myself to go. Sure, I feel sick as a dog. Yeah, I want to heave my guts out. I was 27 years old and I decided to do adult recreational gymnastics. I stuck my first back handspring while I was doing chemotherapy. They were terrified. <laughs> like, you know, I was on blood thinners. So <laughs> there was like forms and forms and forms. Like, listen, you are not, I'm telling like a team of five in no uncertain terms, none of you are responsible for this. This is me doing it to me. I need this. And it was just this like, no, I'm in charge of me. Like, let, let, the, let the cancer team fight what's going on inside of me. I'm going to put my faith in them. I'm going to put my trust that they know what they're doing. They went to school. They have the education. They understand the science. It's up to me to ask questions and get educated from the firsthand standpoint. But when I'm not at the hospital, I'm in charge of my life. Yes. My decisions are my choice. And if I had a day where it felt like, oh, man, my chemo is just like way too strong, intense, fine. I'll spend the day sleeping. I'll do what I got to do. I was not living at home. I was still trying to pay rent. I was still bartending and working and just trying to maintain my appearance so I didn't look sick and I was able to make it work. But it was like that in itself. When I look back on it, when I tell the story, people listen and they go, whoa, that's crazy. And to mirror what we said earlier, it was my normal. Yeah. Just became, it's like, if I'm going to pay my bills, if I'm going to get food in my belly, if I'm still going to be able to go to get my treatments done, I have to find a way to do it. And I did. What a warrior. That was it. Like, just like, you know, I'll, you know, buy, buy, you know, buy my Spartan blood. Like, that's just what I did. And I, I didn't want to, and I didn't really put it on my family because like, I'm living in downtown Toronto uh, outside of my mom, who's in another province. The rest of them were living like, you know, uh, an area code away. So at least a 30, 35 minute drive outside of Toronto. I just tackled it solo. And it came back to that trust conversation where I didn't trust them to know how to handle exactly how um who sorry <laughs> um how tender i was about it um to risk sharing that i'm going to go in for chemo and i'm going to be nauseous all day and i i look weak and to trust them that i can be weak in front of them and it's okay that like that's the meat and potatoes right there about what is so horrifically wrong about men having to live up to this stigma of like, you know, you've got to be this brave front warrior. And believe me, I, I love you for saying that to me. It warmed my heart because it made me feel like I got through it and I didn't do it for nothing because now I'm here and I'm able to converse and I can share and it makes me so happy. And I realize that I sound energetic and teetering on angry. I don't mean to, I'm just very passionate. And it, to, to see anyone go through this where it's either my brothers, my sisters, however, just whatever it is in the spectrum, cancer doesn't care. And if it's going to be there, it's there with them 24 seven. Why can't we, why can't we be there for whoever it is? And if we're talking about men, we're talking about men. Don't let them suffer alone because you don't know what they're going through. They're keeping up a front for you. They're telling you just, oh, I'm okay. I'm tough. I'll mm -hmm. walk it through. It's fine. And they go home and they are dying inside. Yes. Because they're isolated. 
that is like, and it's, it's an internal isolation. They could have 50 family members around them and still feel alone. Mm-hmm. And that's what we got to do to mix it up. We got to change it, find a way to make it better. So, whoo, man, why did I have that second coffee? It's just Come like, bro, oh, oh. And that's what you're doing. I tell you, I tell oh. you, Peter, that's what you're doing right now. You're changing it and trying to make it better for that next person because this is a real, this is a real battle uh, that men have. And, you know, it's not easy. And thank you so much for just being able to, you know, I want to pause and say thank you so much for being able to explain that and share that vulnerability with us. Love you for that. Thank you. And uh, Peter, alone, you know, so many people adopt um, help along the way and to do it alone and to try to mask it at work and going through chemo. Wow. You know, what a, I said a warrior because, wow, that is, it is crazy that we have to do that. And sometimes in life, you can understand a little bit. I, I, I always reference this, but it's like the Black Panther, right? You, you see, you see Chad and what he went through and he didn't want, he didn't want to tell anyone. And he went through that uh, solo. And how many of us, as you brought out just right now, if we, can people can rally around us and be there and to support us and we can be vulnerable with, uh, with them and people not judge that, but just support that, you know, man, it would be so much, be so much better in this world. But I thank you for that. So as you go through chemo, Peter, you have this situation, you're getting through it, you know, so how long, how long did you say, okay, hey, I'm good now? You know, do you have annual checkups and things like that? Well, I, um, I, I would love to say that my, my story got to that point that quick. Mm. Um, uh, it definitely had a change. So the chemo cycle was done. And this was step one of being told that I was quote unquote cured. Okay. And I was very excited to hear about that. And then uh, at that point, it was uh, within three months doing some additional tests and scanning, seeing what's going on inside. I think by May or June, uh, they brought me in and they had said, okay, so here's what's going on. There's dark spots in your abdomen. And we don't know if those are lymph nodes that are burned out from the chemo or those are tumors that are unaffected. And at that point, there wasn't the technology to really assess it more thoroughly. So it was, you have a choice. You can either do wait and see or you can do what's called uh, retroperianal lymph node dissection or an RPLND, uh, then finding out that it's the third most invasive surgery you can do on a person where uh, they start from the base of your chest plate and go all the way to the top of your pelvis with a quick little hook around the belly button. Um, because the lymph nodes are located closer to the spine, they can't go through the back, which is why they effectively hollow you out like a turkey and then do what they do and put everything back. Wow. I was explain this. And I remember my immediate reflex was do the surgery, get it out. I'm not going to risk it. Just everything to do the, before I even knew what a SWOT analysis was from business, I just immediately gauged it and thought not worth the risk. Just whatever it is, do it. Well, the chemotherapy that we gave you caused some fibroid scarring in your lungs. 
So if you go into any type of breathing distress while you're under, we can't give you 100% oxygen. So your odds are 50-50, you'll wake up. And I had to sign a waiver and process the reality of this now at 27 that I'm going in for a surgery on August 1st and there's a coin toss chance I'm going to die. Still, I have not yet developed the skill sets in order to properly trust people in my life. So with my family being, you know, very stereotype Mediterranean, I, I gauged it and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to say that I'm going for a surgery and I've got this. It's fine. I'll be fine. And I went in by myself. Now, I know that I said this to you jovially before when we had a, a preface and uh, I'm always happy to share the story is that on my last, what I called my last day, um, I it was the 31st of July. I knew my appointments is 6 a.m. for August 1st. You know, how am I going to spend my proverbial last day? And I thought, you know, I could run up my credit card. Like, what am I going to do? And of all things, this is dating myself back, you know, uh, uh, August 2003, I went to a video arcade and I just played fighting games for three hours. I've been having a blast. And there was this young boy who decided he wanted to challenge me on Marvel versus X-Men and sorry, Street Fighter versus X-Men. And I was like, I'm pretty good at this. I don't know. His mom's right there. I'm like, sure, let's go. But I'm not going to hold back. When, when, when after four wins, he looks and goes, I hope you die. <laughs> and I turn and I look at the mom, funny story. <laughs> and she grabbed him by the wrist, dragged him out and I, I'm pretty sure I heard some physicality and someone will cry <laughs> afterwards. And I'm just giggling to myself thinking, is it really make me a bad person that that happened? But hey, it's what happened in the moment. And I was honest about it. And it is what it is. Wow. Um, yeah, it was uh, definitely a game changer. It was definitely a game changer post chemo for that. Um, obviously, I'm here. I got through it, which was great. Uh, I was told some very uh, inspiring, I had some inspiring moments in hindsight that were also very scary. Uh, I got into advice from journaling uh, from my oncolo uh, psychosocial oncologist about just really helping to kind of just throw my feelings onto paper and that way I can get through my day and not carrying them with me all the time. And when I got there that day, which would normally be me getting up on August 1st, I was on the last page of that journal. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, is this the end? Is this a new chapter? I don't know. And it didn't really start to hit me. I remember the moment. It was when they started shaving my stomach. It all got real. And I felt the anxiety and I was trying to find peace and just I was doing my thing. I was cracking jokes the whole way through. And even when I was on the table as the anesthesiologist was there, I said, okay, I need you to count back from 10. And my adrenaline was pumping so hard that I said, <laughs> so count back from 10. I was like, I'm at negative two. <laughs> oh you should be out I'm like no this looks at hit him again it's like count back from 10 10 nah. i remember just going out <laughs> and i didn't allow myself to appreciate the gravity of that moment because that could have been it and then i woke up mm. and i Family was there and, you know, of course, um, they were really, really pissed because I didn't tell them until two weeks later actually what the situation was. Oh. They were mad. They were mad because they got shut out. And that was a little bit of a, 
a reality check that I could trust them and I had to give them the chance. And it's having the grace to allow people to make errors. And that was on me in the moment where I didn't feel ready to let someone not be perfect. Yeah. But who am I to say that when I couldn't be perfect myself? That is powerful. It's, it was, I can only say it now in hindsight because in the moment it didn't make sense. Yeah. But then now I can, say, I can look back on that and I can realize, and, you know, A led to B led to C. And that's okay because we all did our best to navigate it as best we could. The um, anesthetist had come in after I woke up and she said, you know, listen, you're really a joy to work with. Um, I just wanted to let you know that when you went to sleep, I know you were really scared, but you were smiling. Mm-hmm. And um, I was ready to go. I was okay. I, I talked to my family the week before and just had genuine conversations saying nothing about what the odds were, but I was okay. And then I woke up. Mm-hmm. What do you do? It's like you get to the end of that fairy tale. They lived happily ever after and they never talk about the next day. Mm-hmm. And I'll be the first to say I was messed up for about a good two years. I might be getting ahead of myself talking about that. You may have a question lined up, but uh, just you trust the process and trust the instrument inside. And in the moment it's leading to my eyes, deciding to give moisture explosions of (laughs) the moment. (laughs) I love that. I love that about you. I love that about you. And so Peter, you know, I want to make sure I'm clear here. They said, we didn't know what these spots were. Let us go back in from an exploratory type deal, right? Because they didn't know what they were. And then they go in, right? You have, it's the day of the surgery and you have it. At this point, the day of the surgery, you still don't know what's happening, right? Until they go in. Is that correct? Am I hearing this correctly? Yeah, so the, um, uh, for the CT scans, the ultrasound, and I believe there were also x-rays involved, all that they could determine was that they were dark spots at the time, and it was an either-or scenario. So I had the opportunity of doing a wait-and-see or get them out. Now, if there was something there, then that indicated that there were cells that metastasized, the chemo hadn't affected it, and you know, if, I wait, if I waited, then I would have waited and it still would have been present, but my gut check was get it out. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to chance it, even though I found out what my odds were, you know, going through the surgery, uh, when everything was said and done, it turned out that they were burned out lymph nodes, which was great. Uh, my oncologist came in and that's where they told me I was cured for the second time. Mm-hmm. So awesome. I thought, you know, great. Life's going to move on. Um, yeah. rec- recovering from the surgery was incredibly challenging. Okay. <laughs> Just, uh, let me tell you, anyone, if, any type of surgery that it could even be remotely within the spectrum of an RPLND, I'll tell you right now, two things. One, organs do not like to be handled. They are not happy when you wake up because they've been sitting the same way your entire life and now they've got <laughs> moved around. So it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? So that's its own thing. And two, regardless of your gender, when they take out that catheter, because you will get a catheter, go to the bathroom for number one, sitting down. Do not try to do it standing up. It's like getting up <laughs> back to the gut. And every guy I've talked to who's been through an RPLND has said the exact same thing. I said, no, the first time you got to pee, sit down. 
do mm -hmm. not try to do it standing because you're not going to trust that IV pole to hold you up. He's <laughs> just like, <gasps> and I remember I just swung around fast, sat down and I'm just hitting that pain management button going, oh, I wish they had told me this is going to feel like this. But so, yeah, that's part of my little pay it forward bit. If they ever say I'm doing an RPLD, okay, here's the hit list. This is what you got to do. And it works out. So for that, I'm, I'm, it's makes my experience a little less uh, harrowing to know that I can at least pay it forward, make it a little bit easier for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. So you have this surgery and you're willing to, you're willing to say, Hey, I may not wake up. And you know what? Here we have Peter right in front of us. Peter has waken up. You have people who love you surrounding you, you know, letting you know, Hey, you know, please forgive us. You know, we, we all make mistakes. And, and, and now this team heralds around you. What amazing, what an amazing thing human beings can be, you know, and you're getting through this. You're in pain now. Walk us through that now. So here we are, Peter, you're cured. You're cured, right? That's what they're telling you. For the second time, they're saying I'm cured. For the second time. Which is good. It feels, obviously feels rewarding. Like, you know, this is the end and now I can just move on with life. Sure. And I'm thinking, all right, I've not no stranger to surgery. It's going to take about six to eight weeks for it to recover. Everything's got to, you know, integrate again. It's all abdominal. I'm being held together with surgical staples, but I can get through this. My goal was at nine weeks, I should be healed. I want to go back to gymnastics. Okay. That was Absolutely. not a wise choice. <laughs> so gymnastics is something that you, you took to like, okay, here we are. You, you're really into this now. You got, you got, you have a thing to do. Well, it was like, I, I think internally, I always just, I saw so many martial art films growing up. I thought the most badass thing is someone who does like a round off double back handspring and into some killer kick move. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. Let's figure that out. And one of the instructors was this guy who was like six foot five, but the super lean beanpole of a human. And I was always under the impression that you had to be compact in order to do any floor work. And this guy just flew. Like he just boom, boom, boom. And I thought if he can do it, so can I. And I just wanted to learn. And yeah, sure, I fumbled through it. Didn't, but then the first time I stuck it, it was like I rediscovered sugar. I'm like, oh, let's go do this again. And just like, yeah, it fell on my face a whole bunch of times. And it's like, but it's, there's crash mats for a reason. Like it's worth it. It's just, honestly, it's fun. And that was a big part of getting through that experience is getting reacquainted with, I always joke about it saying, you know, describe yourself in one sentence. I'm a sugar hop 12 year old. <laughs> exactly it. Like, I, I don't want to lose that feeling. And it's, I think that's part of what helps me maintain a youthful perspective on things, staying open-minded, being fresh to new perspectives and knowing that there's all these different like moments in life. I was very fortunate after, you know, my whole cancer journey, I got to work on a travel show for a year doing photography and seeing and going to places in my life I never thought I'd go to. So it's a bit of a, you know, fast forward sidetrack, but the recovery from the surgery itself was um, it was very challenging. I knew enough about the way that reconnective scar tissue works to try to stay on top of it so it doesn't heal tight. So at least I've got some range of motion and flexibility and it all worked out. So that, were, uh, that was a, uh, what I thought to be the end. And then uh, three years later, I was getting ready to go to work. It was bartending still and just 
top of my game, do my thing. Literally, I'm in the bathroom, I'm sitting on the throne, and I feel this familiar twinge. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's just like, come on, three years later, oh, who, who am I kidding? But I, uh, I did not risk it, and I was done work, and I went right back to Toronto Emerge, and I was my usual jovial self. I treated it like it was a high school reunion. And I said, hey, I thought I graduated, apparently. I might have a course to do. Uh, here for my alumni picture. You need to check this out. <laughs> and they, you know, they're, they're looking at me like, do you, do you have no idea that that just doesn't happen, right? Like, usually it's, it's a one-shot deal. Either one testicle goes or both go at the same time. And at the moment, I just said, look, until you tell me it's not cancer, you can tell me why this hurts. I'm not leaving. That's like, you can't make me go. <laughs> so I was there for 36 hours. When I was getting my ultrasound done, when the, uh, when the technician turned me on my side, as soon as she did that, I'm like, you wouldn't be turning me over unless you saw something. Burst into tears. And she's just like, you're such a nice guy. You're so lighthearted. And I immediately went back to that place when I was consoling my ex-roommate at the time. I got up and here I am again, in a gurney, naked to the waist down, dripping hoop, <laughs> giving a hug to this girl saying, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I've been through this before. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm not supposed to let on that I enjoy see anything. I'm like, just, it never happened. There's no cameras in the room. There better not be cameras because I'm kind of naked. And it is what it is. And sure enough, they pulled me aside and my, my original oncologist came down the next morning and he said, he goes, yeah, um, you've got testicular cancer. It's stage 1A. How did you know? I was like, because I know what it feels like. Mm. Like, why would I risk it? And that's the thing. Like that, that, that's one of the most tragic components of testicular cancer as a disease when you hear about patients who die from it is the men who don't get it checked out, they have this perception like, oh, I got to tough my way through it. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but are you a trained urologist? Do you know enough to know to diagnose yourself? Do you know that health practitioners are not supposed to diagnose themselves? They're supposed to go to someone else so they can be objective. And that's where we lose that perspective because we're raised that with that you know, I'm the caveman, I'm going to take care of everything, protector, toxic masculinity. No, <laughs> no, we are, we are fragile things as humans. And we have to respect that there's this gross misconception that like we're immortal. No, no, it can flip on a dime. And it's being able to respect that process and know that we have an active hand in our decision making that that's the only thing we can ever control. If I was ever to say anything I've learned from this whole experience so far, the only thing I can control is how I react. That's it. Yeah. And there's a power in it because you uh, then, then you just get it. And you know that whatever's in front of you, my reaction is a choice. If I'm going to fly off the handle, that was a choice. If I'm going to be graceful, that's a choice. If I'm going to walk away, that's a choice. But how do I want to be remembered? not by the person involved. How do I want to remember myself? How do I want to look and like, for me to, you know, have a, have a, a moment in time where I could introduce me to my eight-year-old self, would I be proud to show me to him? Would I be able to look at him and say, this is how you're going to turn out. You're going to go through all this craziness, 
but this is how you come out the other side. And I hope you're proud of me. That that's what I carry. That's how I get it. So if, if from anyone listening to this, if that makes sense to you and it, it, it helps put anything forward, regardless of cancer or whatever's happening in your life, I'm glad I existed in this moment, in this forum. Thank you, Kenny, for doing what you do, that maybe it's going to make someone's life a little bit better. Powerful, Peter. Very powerful. So yes, the surgery was difficult. Yes. <laughs> so she, she puts you on your side, you're balling, you hold her, they come in, they say, Peter, this is 1A. What do we do here? I mean, what is 1A? Do we, you know, did you know what 1A means? It means more chemo. Does it mean that we're going to do an or- orchiectomy? What, what happens at this point now, Peter? Well, I, uh, I had learned at that point that uh, it's the earliest possible stage where it's, you know, one, stage two, stage three. If you're at stage four, you're pretty much on death's door. So that's where you want to try to avoid that. And it's sort of, it's so bittersweet and almost bizarre to say this out loud, but to be told in the moment that I was at stage 1A, I had a sigh of relief. Yeah. Of all things, like, you know, I just got told I have cancer for the second time, but I feel it says, ooh, at least it's not stage three. Like that's where my head was at. So it, sure. it speaks a volume about experience and perspective. And in that, when they came up and they were, they told me that I was a stage 1A, it turns out that my instincts were bang on, not just for the orchiectomy that was coming, but because I did the RPLND, because I chose to do it, the cancer had nowhere to metastasize to. The natural pathway would be to go through the lymph nodes and the abdomen, which are naturally connected, but those were all removed. So it was contained, which means I dodged chemo. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that was, that was celebration worthy. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm sporting a good haircut. I don't have to worry about losing weight again. Like just all those things were avoided. So it, it, it was rewarding that I trusted my instinct at that point. And it felt really good. Yeah. And that was, uh, and I got this, not just an opportunity to revisit that experience in a different way with more experienced eyes, wiser eyes, but I was also given a chance to trust my family. And I was able to tell them in a way that even if they might react in a, an emotional or a hypersensitive way, whatever it might be, it's okay. Cause I've already been through this one. So I'm ready. Whatever you're going to throw at me, I'm ready. And they were wonderful. Like they, they were able to understand it. I mean, there, there was still a little bit of like, resentment from the way that I handled it from before. But in now after the fact, they said, look, you're still here. We love you. We're glad that you're okay. You know, you're going to get through this. And apparently at that point at Princess Margaret, I set a record for the most people in a room before surgery. I was over 30. Wow. Uh, one of which was an ex-colleague who was a bodybuilder and they just didn't mess around with him. They're like, like <laughs> French Canadian walks in. is like, I am looking for my friend Peter. And it's like, um, who, he knows the Hulk. <laughs> um, just strolling in and just all these people are surrounding and the nurse walks in at this ready to wheel me out and just goes um is there supposed to be like a disco strobe light or something I go, no, no 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 it's what is it now one o'clock in the afternoon too early for that but there is a martini bar just in the corner if you're interested for it you <laughs> and there's an iv connection if i need that for later come on <laughs> and there's 30 people in the room peter it's 30 people who are there to support you, to show you, we got you. We love you. It was was huge. Um, My, my fear the first time around with that RPLND was 
I was envisioning the, the stereotype understanding I have of my Mediterranean family where they're all fighting to be who's the last person with me. And on the one hand, things weren't so great between my parents. They'd recently gotten divorced. So how is that going to play out in front of me? And then to know that there's this risk of hysterical emotional outburst. Well, if these are my last moments on the planet, are those the last things that I personally want to remember and try to navigate before they're going to put me out? And then on the other hand, I was thinking, if I wake up, I'm, I'm putting them through for nothing. That's not fair. So what kind of a relative am I? How loving am I that that's what I'm putting them through? And that, so it just, I, I wrestled with all those things. And at the time with the information I had in front of me, it made the most sense. It was the safest choice for me. And um, was it fair to them? Absolutely not. Um, playing it off like it was nothing. And uh, I remember recovering from the surgery. Uh, one of my aunts is a retired nurse, and she was the first person I felt comfortable to tell. And I just remember the look in her eyes. She just stood up and she walked away. She said, I can't believe you didn't tell us. And I'm like, I didn't feel safe. It's, it's not against you. It's just I had no precedent in our family. That, and I mean, let's be fair. The coming out thing didn't go over so well. So <laughs> am I going to trust you with this? I was like, your history is not the greatest. But if you don't give them a chance, and this is just something I've learned as well, and you, you brought light to it, which I'm really grateful for, um, giving people those moments, giving them that opportunity to do it again, to trust them, to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe the first time you handle it might not have been the greatest, but that doesn't mean you can't do better. And we can all try to do better. And to find out afterwards from my oncologist, when he said the surgery uh, after the second diagnosis, he said, there's a 3% chance that you will have bilateral testicular cancer with a time lapse in between. I had two different, completely different types of cancer. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, love, I love to say about how now jovially on my LinkedIn profile, my title reads, I run with unicorns. I was, didn't realize how much of a unicorn I was. Like 3%. Like, not to say, you know, where's my lottery ticket, but <laughs> I did win. Like, uh, like that type of situation, how much luckier could I have been that not only did I get diagnosed, did I get through it, now I've gone through it. And, you know, this is my third time I've been told I've been cured after that was done because I didn't need treatment. It was strictly follow-up. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, if I get a third diagnosis of testicular cancer, I'm on the phone with Guinness World Book of Records, and it'll be, <laughs> yeah, in the prosthetic. How? I don't know. But, you know, let's get those cameras out. See what happens. It's like, we'll make it a funny ha-ha. And it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's where my journey has got me to. And then that's where things ultimately changed, where I got a real life, constant, vivid reminder of the importance of, I love to borrow this term from my sister, where she says, remember to show grace and to, to have that in your heart where let people make mistakes, give them the margin of, because we're not perfect. Why should I expect them to be? They're gonna mess up. They're gonna say something wrong, say it out of turn. It might be, and it's, there's nothing behind it. You know, give them two, three chances that they're doing the same thing in the same tone. All right, maybe then you got a scrap on your hands. Mm. But until you know and you clarify, you really solidify that communication circuit, you don't really know because you're not in their shoes. And that's something I've learned in not just my journey, but being given the opportunity to do peer support for my tribe, 
and helping them get through what they're going through. And then it's very similar to what you do. Like we do the same thing in a different way and it's, it's beautiful. And again, this unnecessary plug for you, but just a shout out and the blessing of being able to be a part of this show. It really, it means a lot because it's um, like I said, it makes it all worth it. Peter, thank you so much. You know, and uh, this is what it's about being able to pay this forward. And there's unfortunately, uh, there's going to be more people that with testicular cancer, where do you go? Where do you go to find information that you can benefit from and get confidence about your cancer condition? It's all talk oncology. And so thank you so much uh, for, for paying us that compliment. And, you know, I wanted to talk about that. So Peter, you are a survivor, a thriver, and you go through something as vulnerable as this. How does life change in such a, a different way of appreciation for you? Um, I found that it changed me. And uh, believe it or not, before I got diagnosed, I was not this lighthearted, jovial person. I was way too serious. Mm. I, I learned how to laugh. I learned, again, how to be funny. I learned, again, that we, we are all internally and integrally blessed with light. It's our choice to let it shine. And I was letting so much of my personal insecurities just smear and dull it down. And it took cancer to be my teacher, to just, I, I, I joke about it and I say, I had, <laughs> I, I love to say this, I had to lose my balls to find them. Mm. And I did. Yeah. And it wasn't about being some rough and tumble, you know, yeah, sure. There are sometimes I know that I like, I grit my teeth, I bear down and it doesn't matter what's in front of me. I'm just going to fight it because it's given me this perspective, the spectrum of we all have relative experience when it comes to what we see as being our worst day. And when I gauge my worst experience, I think cancer. So everything else is relatable. And it's never to take away from someone else because we all have a different gauge, but that's mine. And that's what helps me stay grounded when things happen. And it didn't occur to me that how peer support became so natural where it's just, I see you, I see what's going on with you. And I feel for you because I've been there and I don't want you to feel that sense of isolation that I went through. So I'm going to listen. And if there's something that it comes from you that we connect and we resonate, we share that energy and it makes things a bit lighter, then I done good. I, you know, I'm honoring why I'm here. And that's like, that's feels good. It yeah. feels good. So to, to answer your question, I'd say that's how it changed things. And um, also gave me a lot of really great punchlines for whenever I tell some <laughs> cancer jokes because uh, my one time doing stand up killed it. Killed it. it was really fun. Uh, I can't, I can't imagine that, you know, you not being funny. I can't even imagine that everything you do, man, it's, it's, it's making me laugh. I think to something that my father told me when I was younger and I didn't appreciate it fully at the time because um, English was not his first language. And uh, his expression was, it doesn't matter how good you are. There's always someone better. And it wasn't until I got older and I was able to talk to him about it, I understood what he meant was, is no matter how good you are at what you do in life, there's always someone better and there's always someone worse, but that's your place. And the trick is finding it. And it's not 
necessarily hierarchical. It's just somewhere. And finding that, you know, you're that one piece in the Jenga tower that keeps it going. And that that's your slot. And that's okay. Because it's meant for you. And that is something that I celebrate internally. Uh, regrettably, my father passed from cancer. Uh, he had a relapse uh, just, to, just almost five years ago, actually. The end of this month is the anniversary of his death. And um, I, life got different after my second diagnosis where I had to first metabolize everything I'd been through. And there was a lot of internal shame. There was a lot of... Um, self-deprecation. I mean, I like literally I, people would say things like, you know, come on, you just have the balls to do it. And my response would be funny story. They didn't know. And then, then they immediately shut down because they're looking at it going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, how would you know? How would you possibly know? Are you, you know, going to cut me down there in order to check what's going on? Because to be fair, now they are solid and firm. It's basically a push-up bra for my junk. It's awesome. I never have to worry about dry, like they're never going to be swing low, swing chariot. It's just sitting where they're supposed to. It's great. So, you know, upshot. And killing me, Peter. <laughs> it's, it's finding those moments of that delightfully awkward comedy, but that's what makes it even more hysterical yes. is because we see it as awkward. Why? Like it's, it's kind of, it's almost a sadness that I can find the humor in it so quickly because I can bank on a person's awkward re reaction to the subject because they're immediately uncomfortable talking about testicles, but it's still technically 2% of your body. Like, why is this such a big deal? It's only because we've made it a big deal. Yeah. We've, we, we've identified it as being such a pivotal, just uh, integral part of what it means to be male, as opposed to all the other incredible things that what it means to be human just happen to be male that's like i don't see why that should be the deal breaker so to to speak to how things have changed uh it took a long time for me to come to that place to really understand it i mean there was one story about how i remember there was this guy that i was dating and he just i, I shared with him about the whole testicular cancer thing and just off the cuff i mean i thought you know him being someone who was in the arts like he'd be a bit more sensitive and understanding so yeah you know i know what that feels like i had a bad breakup once like, yeah yeah it's just <laughs> like that just like that you know having parts of your body ripped out and then losing all your hair losing it's just a completely on point i don't know how i didn't see that myself wow time's going i gotta go and uh, <laughs> uh, reevaluate my everything and <laughs> It is what it is. It was what it was. But it's, I, it was a moment for me to understand that everyone comes from a different place and they're all going to interpret when they hear something serious differently. Some will turn inward. Some might use comedy. Some might bow out because they just don't know what to do. And then there are some people who get it and they're able to be that mirror that that person needs in the moment. And that's what I eventually learned was, I mean, I explored the idea, should I get into, um, you know, formalized counseling? Do I like, is this my life calling? Is this what I want to do? And then I realized, wait a sec, I've got all these skill sets inside, find the places where I can use them informally, and then just let it grow organically, see where it takes me. And to have been fortunate enough to be trusted by more than one cancer charity to be that lifeline for other survivors, be it testicular or otherwise, to say, hey, you know what? Pete's kind of got it together. Like he, he's, he's seen it, he understands what it is, and he's, he's able to navigate. And 
I, I always like to say, you know, this is my roadmap. And if something from here makes sense for you, that it gives you a bit of compass direction, then I didn't go through it for nothing. Absolutely. And I'm happy, happy to pay that forward. So to answer your question, yes, that's how things have changed. And uh, definitely a lot more ball puns. <laughs> a lot of ball puns. It's like, I, I, sa I savagely and quietly enjoy making people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I do. It's so much fun. Look, look, Peter, I can imagine, can only imagine. And it, it makes sense. Because you come on this interview and your t-shirt is, I am ballsy. I mean, you, you're a killer, man. I, I tell you not, you are hysterical. You know what I mean? And thank you for that. Thank you for that. You know, because we all, we all need to lighten up a little bit, you know, um, because we do take life so seriously and, uh, you don't know what serious is until you've been diagnosed with cancer. How about that? It's so true. It's so mm -hmm. true. It's, um, I, I find that the, the greatest takeaway is again, I, I have to credit, uh, Jeff Eaton from Young Adult Cancer Canada for this one is the importance of being around people who get it. And it might not even be because they're also a cancer survivor. It could be someone who is in oncology and they've been around it enough to sit, like, even though I'm not in your shoes, I've been around this enough to see how it impacts people. And just being that mirror, being that sounding board, um, a communications expert that I got to do a boot camp with a while ago taught me the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule, which is something I just hold to my heart where we all know the golden rule to say, you know, do unto others as uh, you would want done to you. But then the platinum rule is do unto others as they would want done unto them. And that requires listening, mm. really hearing them. And it's not about you understanding what they're saying. It's about them feeling understood. Then they feel safe. And if, like, if I just gave away my secret as to how I do what I do, oops. But then <laughs> that means somewhere in the podcast world, somewhere in the view channel world, someone's light's going to go off. And they say, whoa that Peter guy. Cool. I think I could do that. And I'm like, I just paid it forward. Awesome. Because yes. now it continues. The light gets shared and it makes things a little less scary and doesn't have to be testicular. It could be whatever it might be. And I mean, I'm fully aware like myself, I'm 45 years old and pretty soon I'm going to have to be in the zone for checking for prostate. And I also don't know what the future holds. Um, my type of chemotherapy was, uh, you know, clinically deduced, if I'm not mistaken, in the 90s. And so given that my treatment was provided in 2002, 2003, sorry, early January, it started. Um, I'm at the front end of the curve. So they don't have a lot of survivors in front of me to say, you know, after 20 years, this is the way it's going to be. 30 years, this is the way it's going to be. No, I, I am the data. Mm. So I just keep going in. Whatever's going to happen, happens. Do I still have those moments where I feel like the Damocles sword is swinging? 100%. Mm -hmm. Do I get scanxiety when I go in for my tests once a year? Uh, believe it. I'm completely subject to the same feelings as the rest of us. Yeah. But I have that support team. I trust my spouse. I tell them, you know, this is what's going on. This is where we are. This is where I'm at. And we're just going to get through this step by step. And yeah, do I end up being the, you know, as you know, when I was doing my uh, co-leadering for the local life program in Toronto with my co-leader Bonnie there was that uh, nickname I picked up they said you know Pete's Captain America he just runs in like he's the guy who doesn't even think twice like whatever the fight is he just goes and 
there's worse ways to be remembered. So, you know, it's uh, uh, for those who are watching the video side of it, they'll be able to see it. But for those who are listening, I'm, I apologize for it. Uh, I've got to tell I was a huge fan. I still am. Personal love of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I watched it all during my chemo. It just kind of kept my head straight because that whole metaphor of like one person fighting their demons, you feel like you're the only person in the world who's just stuck with it. And that made sense. Every episode made sense. And it got me through. And I got this tattoo where it says right here, fight cancer like a slayer. And the number of people who've seen that and they just smile and they just, they, they, they know they can talk about it. And then those magical moments for like their, their story, they just decide to share. And you know that it's free. You know that it's authentic. Like that is life, is experience. Yeah, and yeah. I have no illusion that I'm lucky enough to still be here to have experiences at all, which sadly leads to the tattoo on my other forearm, which is the names of family and friends who have passed from cancer that I carry with me because they touched my life. The first one being my father. And I never want to lose sight of that ever. So it's um, every moment, every time that there's these media opportunities, anything that I get to do, if it's something that ends up building to more of that story, then if I'm lucky enough that someone sees that and it connects with them and then they feel that inspiration, they find their light. I didn't do it for nothing. Yeah, It feels good. So I'm thankful for being on this platform today. I really oh. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for enlightening us on your, on your journey. And may this be a light to someone else. So as they get ready to bark on a journey of testicular cancer, Peter, you're a brave soul. And one last thing, what would you like to say to the listener who may be going through this, who have been diagnosed? What would you say? Don't try to do it perfect. There is no perfect. It's just getting through one moment to the next. Whoever is in your circle, if you feel like you can trust them in the moment to lean on them, do it. They just might surprise you. They might make mistakes. They're not going to be perfect. Neither are you. And, um, and at the same time, trust your team. Uh, I'd like to reflect on a moment that my mom said a lot of the time is a great metaphor. The garden would be very boring if it was just roses. So you might be surprised at the people that you can call on that'll be there for you when you give them a chance. Mm. Powerful. Peter Lannis here on All Talk Oncology. We appreciate you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Peter. Peter. <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. Thank you for doing what you do. It wouldn't be the same in this world without you. Uh, Peter, appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. So again, I want to thank everyone who tuned in today. Here's where you will find up-to-date cancer discussions with industry experts and leading professionals that can help you in your cancer fight. You are not alone in this. We are in this together. I'm your host, Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. The Cancer Guy. And until again, I'm out.